Oscar Combs here, and I want to put one rumor to rest, once and for all. The story is that Rafferty's goes all out for sports fans. And let me tell you, it's absolutely true. Confirmed. And fans love Rafferty's right back because the food is so terrific. Serve fresh, serve fast, serve friendly, lunch or dinner. Rafferty's menu is jam-packed with all your favorites. Steaks, prime rib, chicken, ribs, delicious dishes and generous sizes that really satisfy the appetite. So come hang with the sports crowd at Rafferty's. It's the tastiest place in town. Welcome into part two of Oscar's conversation with Kenny Walker. So many of you enjoyed part one of Oscar's interview with Kenny. We couldn't hold part two back from the Big Blue Nation any longer. Kenny continues to take us through his college years at Kentucky, starting with his freshman year and playing in the Dream Game in Knoxville. We'll also hear his thoughts on the late Charles Hurt and Melvin Turpin. Kenny talks about one of the most devastating losses in Kentucky basketball history and Coach Hall's retirement. And just because Kenny was in the NBA doesn't mean he did not have an influence on Kentucky basketball and some of the outsiders looking in. Oh yeah, you're going to hear the greatest Melvin Turpin story ever. Trust me. I'm Bo Robinson, and I had a little fun with Kenny at the end of our interview, but I had the most fun just sitting back and listening to Kenny Skywalker. This is Conversations with Oscar Combs and Kenny Walker, Part 2. Kenny, you come to Kentucky at a time when things were going very good for Kentucky in the SEC and around the country. and You joined a team in uh, 82 and 83 that had the likes of Melvin Turpin, Sam Bowie on it, uh, Dickie Beal. Charles Hurt, uh, you know, and and had Sam came back that year, mm-hmm. you thought he was coming back right up until, I guess, September, October, yeah. and it seemed like it was delay after delay, but there's a lot of optimism. One of the main reasons why I chose to come to Kentucky, you know, I mean, I could have been, went to Georgia and been the next Dominique Wilkins, or I could have went to Auburn and joined Chuck Person and Charles Barkley and maybe had a good career there. But it was very intriguing to me, you know, before I signed. Um, initially, I didn't want to play center in college. Kind of ironic, you know, my last couple of years I at Kentucky, I ended up playing center, you know. But um, it was very intriguing to play with S- Sam and Melvin. And like you said, unfortunately, Sam was kind of ruled out, you know, at the last minute. You know, had Sam played my – freshman year at UK, 82-83, we probably could have won a championship that year. But we all know that, unfortunately for Sam, uh, he didn't play that year, um, which hurt us tremendously. But we still had a great year. And we were one game shy of going to the Final Four. And uh, we played in what's now known as the original dream game. Uh, down in Knoxville, Tennessee. It was kind of weird, a whole setup for me as a freshman, uh, Oscar, walking out on that court and just uh, just seeing all of the blue and red playing on an orange Tennessee court. And, <laughs> That's still strange even yeah, today. Yeah, right. And, 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 and the governor at that time, you know, coming down um, – John White Brown. With a half red and a half blue jacket. As a freshman, of course, I couldn't really, you know, understand, well, how are these people so excited about this game? It's another ball game, you know. That's kind of how I was looking at it. Like, what's the big deal? Obviously, (laughs) you know, after dealing with that experience, I knew what the big deal was from there on out. But that was – that was an awesome experience. Obviously, if we have Sam Bowie in that game, I think we win that ball game. It was a great game, went into overtime. You uh, actually actually uh, uh, had the ball and the score tied at one point, and then you had to come back and hit a, hit a bucket in the final three or four seconds to send it to overtime. Well, I mean, uh, Jim Masters, uh, you know, if you look at that shot today, it's deep. It's a, it's a three it's, and a one-point win. It's a three and a one-point win. So, um, I wish we had the three-point line in at that time, obviously. But, you know, just take the fans back a few plays, you know, before that. You know, Dirk Minifield, who was probably – 
um, maybe one of the best athletes that I've ever played with. You know, it's a great opportunity, you know, open up for him. You know, we were going to milk the clock and take it down to try to get the last, you know, last shot. But Dirk saw an opportunity to go down the baseline. And the Dirk minifield that I'm accustomed to seeing is just a guy that's going up and hammering it home, um, dunking, boom, game over. But for whatever reason, a split second, he tried to throw up a little floater, a little finger roll there that Charles Jones got just enough of it to distract it. You know, any other time I know Dirk, you know, put the hammer down on that play. And uh, I wish he would have because I think if he would have closed the door on that play, um, we probably would have won the won the ball game. During those first two years, you had a lot of battles with the teams that you consider to go to Auburn and, and Georgia. Uh, one in particular, uh, just a few um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we lost Charles Hurt, one of your. Mm-hmm. teammates and one of the favorite players of all time here at Kentucky. Uh, in Auburn, Alabama, there was a, there was a game <laughs> that involved three people, Charles Barkley, Charles Hurd, and another one that we've lost, Melvin Turpin. Melvin Turpin, yeah. Tell us how you remember it. Boy, I tell you that <laughs> – well, Charles Barkley, obviously, the round mound, the rebound uh, – you know, Sir Charles, you know, he was the biggest character and the SEC player of the year probably. If, if it wasn't that year, it was probably maybe the following year, but he was an up-and-rising star. Which, ironically, is a player that not many people recruited. Absolutely. High well, he was not that – well, he, he was a late bloomer, as they would say. Kind of an undersized if power forward, if you will, uh, that obviously played center at Auburn. And when he was at Auburn, he was well over 300 pounds. But even at that weight, he's one of the most unbelievable athletes I think I've ever seen. So uh, leading up to that ball game, you know, in practice, I remember Coach Hall saying, yeah, we need somebody that's going to be ready to challenge Charles Barkley, you know. I mean, I need some real guys out there. So we had a kind of a tough week of practice. Challenging your man. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And and then, of course, Melvin, God rest his soul, he's just great guy and everything. And Melvin had a tendency sometimes to maybe say things in the press to – get other teams, you know, riled up a little bit. And I think that somebody asked him right before the game, you know, what was it going to be like to go against Charles Barkley? And he said, who? Charles who? <laughs> so that immediately, you know, that kind of created a controversy. And I think that got back to Charles a little bit. So Charles was the one guy that could always get on under Melvin's skin. So – Going into the ball game, you know, uh, we're out there warming up. And I guess Melvin goes up to one of the coaches or something and said, hey, you know, I'm not feeling too good. You know, I'm not, you know, I don't want to, you know, I don't know if I can start tonight. And he's just like, well, okay, Melvin, you know, just see if you get yourself together. Just let us know and we'll, 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 we'll see what happens. Well, this, this is the ball game that we throw it up tip it off early in the ball game and within what a minute and a half two minutes into the ball game Charles Hurt and Charles Barkley get tangled up up under the basket now for me personally I think Charles exaggerated a little bit but Charles Hurt is a strong man and he knew how to get angles and everything well they were going up for a rebound the only thing I seen Charles Barkley went flying out of the picture, and he landed on the camera guys, and he fell over, uh, over like on the like little press row there on the baseline. No phone call, um, no foul call, and Charles Barkley he's outrate that no foul is called. We get the ball, Kentucky. We get the ball. We're transitioning to the other end. Charles Barkley went from running down the court and he smacks Charles Hurt in the back of the head and he immediately gets a technical foul and he gets ejected from the game. Two minutes in. 
So, needless to say, you know, we're we're happy to get him out of the ball game, but nobody's more happy than Melvin Turpin. All of a sudden, he's up off the bench, <laughs> and he's he's feeling good now. <laughs> He, he comes in the ball game. He leads us in score. Has a tremendous ball game, and I think he probably had the best game plan probably of all. But you know, it's just amazing to me how well he started to feel after Charles Barkley got kicked out of the ball game. That that that's amazing. And then let, look, I know we're skipping around here, but we just do whatever we want to do. Mm-hmm. But then the next. And and I love Charles Barkley. I mm-hmm. think he's one of the greatest players. I love watching him on TV. Mm-hmm. But the next big episode involving Charles Barkley, uh, even though it was on opposite ends of the court, was a championship game of the SC mm-hmm. tournament in 1984. And one of the Wildcats, I don't remember which one, but he threw up a brick and it bounced 40 <laughs> times and went through. You might have a better memory of that. Well, I, I've always said, you know, that it wasn't the prettiest shot in my career in terms of you want to, you know, switch the net and you want it to go through really clean. No style points. No, no, no. No style points on this one. This is the ugliest shot and the best shot of my career all at the same time. First of all, the score is tied, 49-49. Kentucky, Auburn, championship game, Nashville, Tennessee. Nashville, Tennessee, eight seconds to go in the ball game. Coach Hall calls a timeout. Boys, we're going to run this play. A double pick along the baseline for Kenny Walker. Not, not, not Dickie Bill, not Jim Masters, not Melvin Turpin, not Sam Bowie, but a sophomore, Kenny Walker, to come off of this double pick along the baseline, and you're going to make the shot to win the game. <laughs> when, he, when he said that in the huddle, <laughs> of course – my eyes must have got that big, I guarantee you. But And I was like, wow, why is he doing that? He said, well, I guarantee you. They think we're going to probably go to one of the other guys. And he said, but this play is going to work. He said, look, don't worry about it. If you don't make it, the worst possible thing that we can do is go overtime. He said, by the time the play develops, you're going to have just enough time to catch it and elevate the shoot. And the way that you can jump uh, – Nobody's going to contest your shot. Just go up and get a clean look at it. So I was really more concerned when I caught the ball, just trying to elevate as high as I could. I think I was concentrating more on that than actually getting the shot off. And just kind of like maybe Coach Hall anticipated, Chuck Person, who was guarding me on the play, he really didn't jump with me. So I elevated, and I didn't get the proper, I guess, arc on the ball. It hit the front of the rim and it bounced up about two or three feet over the rim, and then it switched back through as time expired. It was the ugliest shot in my career. But the best memory was after that game, I don't know if you remember this, I ran to the side. The very first two guys to approach me was Joby Hall and Bill Kitely, rubbing me on my head. And then when I saw the replay of it, they panned over, to Charles Barkley on the other end of the court laying on the floor crying yeah, like yeah. a baby yeah. and when a lot of people are calling to the radio posting game show that I do with Larry now they said Kenny thank you for that shot in 1984 they still remember they say you're the only guy in Kentucky history that we've seen make Charles Barkley cry so now that, <laughs> that 84 season continued the mm. next week you played Louisville Mm-hmm. Again. The second time. Again. That was the third time counting the first one. Mm-hmm. You played them in Knoxville. Mm-hmm. Then you played them at Rupp to open the, the 83. Blew them out in season. that game. Blew yeah. them out, yeah. And then you had to play them in Illinois to get to the Final oh, Four. That was a tough Final Four. Uh, <clears throat> a lot of people were kind of upset that we played it in Lexington, you know, but uh, we were happy about it and uh, how much – did it play in the big scheme of things? I still think that we had to go out and win it. But they were very two uh, tough ball games. I have a lot of great deal of respect for Denny Crum. I've gotten to know him over the years. 
And not that I didn't respect him when we played against his teams. You just look back at some of the games and the preparation and the adjustments that Louisville made from that first game to the second game. Uh, Again, I'm glad that it was in Rupp Arena. I think that we had a little bit more juice from the home crowd, which probably played a little bit in, in our advantage to win that ball game. But we just did squeak that one out. So emotionally, we put a lot into that ball game. And it was tough, really, to bounce back to play against a very good Illinois team. Yeah, yeah, had you played Illinois earlier that year or not? Uh, or yeah, like yeah. Wasn't that great snowstorm? That was a great snow. That's right. And uh, only maybe a couple of hundred people showed up for the game. They had to get two referees out of the stand. One was a high school referee. To, to referee the game. And I bumped into him two years later at uh, Executive yeah. in Louisville mm-hmm. when Kentucky was getting ready to play, I think, Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. And I looked at this guy, and he was getting ready to go in a restaurant. I said, do I know you? He said, yeah. He said, you probably do. And I said, where do I know you from? He said, I'm the referee that they poured out of the stands and called that Illinois game. And, you know, and I'm going to tell you what I remember about that game besides a, that weird situation, uh, getting caught in that snowstorm. We took a bus all the way back to Lexington after that. It With took the it to, president yeah, of the university. I, 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 absolutely, uh, but we we won that ball game. I mean, it was an ugly ball game, nip and tuck, back and forth. But there was a freshman by the name of James Blackman with about, I guess, four or five seconds left in the game. Coach Hall calls a timeout. We get possessing the ball. He said, "Okay, I want you guys to just to clear the floor." And we're going to give the ball to James, and he's going to go win the game for us. And I went, wow, freshman is going to go win the game for us? And it, but James Blackman, his freshman year might have been his best year at UK. And, boy, I remember the move that he put on Bruce Douglas. He crossed him over and got in the lane just to pull up a jump shot, and he switched the jump shot just so calmly. As time uh, ran out, and I was like, man, I can't believe that guy's a freshman. He did that. And the officiating really wasn't all that bad that night, as I remember. Uh, well, if, if if I had my druthers, I must rather take those guys over some the real officials sometimes that <laughs> call the game. I think it was more of a fair game. You know, it was just unfortunate that, you know, a really good game like that, you know, the, the snowstorm, you know, kept a lot of people because that was going to be a big game for yeah. them. And obviously we met them a little bit later on in that season. That just shows you just how good, you know, they were. You know, the NCAA changed its rule after that Mideast Regional that you could no longer appear in the bracket to where you could play in the regional on your home court. Well, the NCAA also changed the rule after my senior year after we had to play Alabama for the fourth time and then had to play LSU for the fourth time that you couldn't put all of the same teams in the same bracket. Well, well, we're we're, we're in the business of making the NCAA change rules, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) You, You go to Seattle and emotions are high. You beat a great Houston team on Super Bowl Sunday in January. And you go up there, you're playing Georgetown, and I want to say with two, three, four minutes to go in the first half, you're actually up 13. Mm-hmm. And they cut it to seven, and mm-hmm. then what happened? You know, um, I've been asked that question a lot over the years. Um, I really feel bad for Coach Hall because the, the number one thing people ask, well, what did he say at halftime? Well, he's a good coach. It's going to say what any other good coach is going to say. Guys, we played well. It was just the first half. We got 20 more minutes. We got to finish the deal. But we got to wipe the slate clean. We got to go out and play with the same type of intensity and effort and all that. Any other thing that a good coach would say, Joe Hall said it. Uh, I've never been a part of a ball game where – the whole entire team just went cold. Yeah, you might have one or two guys that might have an off night, but somebody's going to find a rhythm to do something. And I just remember coming out in that second half, it seemed like we were just pressing too hard. Uh, And with every miss, uh, 
we seem to lose, you know, confidence. We miss layups. We miss shots that we normally make. And it was just really frustrating for me to just see that because I know I knew we were much better than what we were. Um, and, of course, Georgetown didn't play much better, but they played better than we did in the second half. And I think that their physical style of play probably wore on us a little bit like it did with a lot of other teams. But just like I used to tell Patrick Ewing all the time when I eventually played with him in New York, it was kind of tough to go – play on the same team with the guy that beat you in the championship a couple years before. And he would always brag about that and wear his championship ring and make fun of me and everything, everything. But, um, they just, you know, they, they, they jumped up the game and we didn't make shots. Um, I don't want to take anything away from the Georgetown team because that's a great team. Patrick is a great player, but if we make, I think in the second half, we made, Three of 33, 9.1%. If we make 30% of our shots in the second half, we probably win the ball game. Um, It's just unfortunate on the biggest stage, we laid a goose goose egg at least for a second half. And if there's any lesson out of all of this, I guess you got to play two halves. You just can't pack it in at halftime. And not to say that we did, but – just definitely the worst second half of my life of any kind of basketball. And for the Joe B. Hall era, that was sort of the end of the glory road because it was certainly a rebuilding year next year, and you were going to be the eye of it. Well, uh, it was the end of the glory road, you know, as far as winning the championship. And uh, little did we know that the next year would be Coach Hall's last year. Um, we did not have a good season. We were 16-12. and 12. I think uh, in uh, 84, 85, uh, definitely rebounding after losing uh, Sam Bowie, Melvin Turpin, Jim Masters, Dickie Bill, all of those guys. So we lost a big chunk of our, of our team, and it took us the whole year to get it together. And I was supposed to be the leader of the bunch. And uh, we were really counting on Cedric Jenkins and Rob Locke, two freshmen that were supposed to come in and replace Bowie and Turpin, but they weren't quite ready. So I ended up playing center uh, that year. It took us pretty much all year to jail. We got beat in the very first round of the SEC tournament. I think it was Vanderbilt, wasn't it? It was Florida. Florida. Yeah, University of Florida. And there was serious doubt if we were even making the tournament. Matter of fact, most people didn't think you were going to make it. Well, matter of fact, we had a couple guys that went on spring break that was taking off heading to Florida, and after they had uh, selection Sunday, we had to call them and <laughs> tell them tell them turn around, come back. We're going to the tournament, and I remember Coach Hall. I've never seen him this loose before. And- when we made the tournament, when we made the tournament. You know, we got together for practice and stuff, and I re- remember him saying, boys, we, we're really not supposed to be here, you know, but if they're going to let us in, hey, let's see what we can do. It, it was the first time that I don't think he ever felt pressure, and I think he knew that he was going to be stepping down at the end, so it was the most relaxed I think I've ever seen him coach, and we made a little noise. We made well, it all the way to the Sweet 16. When, when, you, when, you, when you got that notification you were in a tournament, you knew by looking up the bracket you were going to be an underdog in every game. Mm-hmm. And you played two very good teams right at the outstart. You played uh, Washington and I believe it was UNLV. UNLV, very And self-care. then you ended up playing uh, St. John's in mm-hmm. Sweet 16. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christian Delph and uh, what was the other kid at Washington? Uh, Rogers, I think it was Reggie Rogers or somebody. A Yes. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and – uh, he went on and played many years in the NBA. Yeah, absolutely. And then you had a really good UNLV yeah, B team. Yeah, yeah. And then you came home after that first round, and then you were going back out there in Denver to mm-hmm. play St. John's the night that uh, you got one of your – Yeah, got stressed in the cornea. Yeah. Chris Mullins. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe the most – famous eye stretch in the history of Kentucky <laughs> basketball, you know, because I know people who still hate Chris Mullins to this day. 
Do, do, do you think that uh, you you alluded to it a couple minutes earlier? Do you think that uh, that did you all feel any sense that Joe was going to hang it up during that year up to the tournament? Not not until the very end. Um, you know, we it like you said, it was a rebuilding year. It was an awful lot of pressure on our young freshmen, Cedric and Rob Locke. You know, Ed Davener, Richard Madison were a part of that class. Those guys seemed to fit in, you know, fairly well. But obviously, there was big, big void there at center. And I thought Coach Hall did a best job he possibly could is trying to develop those guys as much as he possibly could. But they just didn't develop until the end of the year. But I thought Coach Hall showed great patience. He tried, you know, different things. And uh, probably after about six or seven games, he called me into his office because I think we got off to a one and four start that year. He said, son, um, I'm trying these different combinations, trying to do these different things, and it ain't working. He said, we're gonna, you're going to have to be our horse. We're going to have to put a saddle on you, and we're going to have to ride you. He said, you're going to have to pretty much go out and average 20 points and 10 or 12 rebounds. And not that I went out to do it, but that particular year, which was his last year, I averaged almost 23 points a game and almost 11 rebounds. I always kid Coach Hall to this day, not that this is important in the big scheme of things. I said, Coach, had you never left the University of Kentucky, I probably could be UK's all-time leading scorer because I know you would have threw it inside to me a little bit more, <laughs> you know, my senior year because my scoring average went down to from about 22 and a half to about 20, you know, points a game. But – we won a whole lot more game, which is in the big scheme of things, that's the only thing that matters. When did you and the rest of the players first hear that he was stepping down? It wasn't really until we went out to Denver, you know, really. Um, yeah, I had heard a few things like during the season, but you hear rumors about Kentucky players and coaches all the time. But, you know, he seemed to be doing well and you know, was really, uh, really enjoying the. The tournament, especially once we got in, I remember winning those first two games against you know um, UNLV and, and Washington. We came back. We had a very good week of practice. Uh, he was unusually loose at that time, and then he really uh, started to talk a, a, a whole lot about where it all started. You know, because uh, he started out at Regis College, which was near Denver. And we practiced out at Regis College. You know, that when we went out there, I guess he wanted to go back and memories and great everything. The camera crew was now, there. Did you know at that time he was No, uh-uh, uh-uh. But that was kind of, you know, when you're like, okay, we can practice at the arena. Why are we practicing here? You know, I mean, but still, you know, you're – 18, 19, 20 years. No, you talking, you thinking about what your pregame meal is going to be, what movie you're going to watch or whatever. You're just not zeroing in on that stuff. But I remember, though, after that practice, the next day, you know, before the game, and, and it was a lot of talks amongst the fans that it could be, you know, his last year. You know, of course, again, you're trying to focus on the game. You're not trying to pay much of attention to rumors again when you're 18 19 years old you hear those type of things but you don't really focus in on them and i'm glad that you don't so i don't really think it affected us a whole lot we didn't really know for sure oscar um i, I remember the when the game was over so you at, at, when the final horn you still didn't know you still didn't know what was the locker room like well obviously it's very somber feeling you know everybody's down uh, even though, you know, <laughs> we probably didn't deserve to be there and should have been happy with our accomplishment. But you're disappointed when you, lo when you lose. And what made this more disappointing, had we won that game and won the next game, we were, at home. we were at home in Rupp Arena in the Final Four. So we had great motivation. So we were very disappointed in that. So uh, summer mood in the locker room, guys moping around. But, you know, you eventually get a shower just like, you do when you deal with any other loss, and you're just on the bus waiting, really. You're just waiting, 
Did, and, did, did Joe talk to you all about mm, quitting or anything mm, after the game? Mm, he gave uh, his normal post-game uh, speech. Guys, so proud of you guys. Uh, you guys did more than I expected. Don't be ashamed or don't be down. We did the best we could. You know, keep your head up. Again, anything that a good coach would do, just like he always did. Uh, caring more about us probably than he did himself, which – um, you know, if he would have made his announcement then, maybe he felt like he was putting himself first. But he took care of us, and then we all moseyed out on the bus, and then we're sitting there, and it's taking a little longer and taking a little longer. And it might have been D. Holston or somebody that came and told the bus driver, uh, Coach Hall is making his resignation on the radio. To, you know, so we we knew right before he got on the bus, but we didn't know until he actually went out and uh, he was speaking to K Kwood. Of course, I've seen plenty of the videos, you know, mm -hmm. since then. But when he was making that announcement, we all was actually sitting on the bus. So if it wasn't for D, you know, we wouldn't have known. But obviously, when he got on the bus, he addressed the situation, said that it was true, said that. Um, he regretted, you know, stepping down for, you know, guys who were going to be around. Been a pleasure to coach all of you guys. Don't worry about it. You all are going to find a good coach and everything will be fine. So that was all done on the bus Absolutely. from the stadium to the mm -hmm. airport. Mm -hmm. uh, you go into the next year and after uh, being here for the Final Four, I don't know if you went on spring bake or if you took it in or not, but they went through about a 10-day period of hiring a coach and they hired Eddie Sutton. Mm -hmm. And um, so give us a little thought process there on hiring him and then what it was going to be like going into the next year. Well, I actually gave a lot of thought about leaving. There was only 24 teams in the NBA at that time. And I had sat down with my advisors, talked to a lot of people, my high school coach, talked to my family. And everybody was telling me that I could be taken anywhere from 12, 13, 14 in the draft, all the way down to the 24th pick in the latter part of the first round. And that would have been great um, to maybe leave at that time and go on with my life. But when they named Eddie Sutton the head coach, he wanted to talk to me. And uh, it's like, sure, I'll sit down and talk to him, just hear what he's got to say. And he said, son, I know you got a tough decision that you got to make. And he said, I wouldn't fault you one bit, you know, for leaving. He said, I've watched you play over your career. He said, you're an outstanding player. And if you leave, you know, right now, I mean, nobody's going to be disappointed with that decision. He said, but I promise you this. If you come back and play for me, we can improve your draft st uh, status. We're going to turn this team around you guys are going to win and we're going to do something special here and just give me an opportunity he said i know you don't know me but i think that i can help you out with all of those goals and of course um you know you go out on a whim you talk to your family and your friends and i had I asked my mom and dad and they were instrumental in that decision i said do you all need me to go and right now to take, yeah to take care of you guys and of course, my mom and dad, just like they are, no, we want you to be happy. If you feel like you can go, you can do it, then do it. But don't do it for us. Make the best decision, you know, for you. So I talked to Coach Hall, talked to Leonard Hamilton, talked to my high school coach. And everybody that I talked to felt like, Kenny, if you come back for one more year, put on a few more pounds, uh, finish what you started, maybe get a national championship here at Kentucky, which not a lot of guys, you know, have one of those under their belt. Uh, then get your degree. You're going to make your mom happy, make your dad happy, um, uh, increase your draft status, and it'll be a win-win situation for everybody. Well, luckily for me, I came back, and instead of being drafted, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, uh, I'm top five pick now. And – within the eyelash of winning a national championship, and I got my degree. And I'm the second all-time leading scorer in the history of Kentucky basketball. So it's a lot of good things came out for staying that senior year. 
Um, so I'm, I don't regret that at all. I know it was a phenomenal year that year, and, and a lot of people had sights set on winning the national championship, and it had not been for a little bit of a freak incident of the NCAA playing <laughs> favorites. The first thing was, I think, LSU getting the opportunity to play Georgia Tech on their home court mm-hmm. in the very first round when Georgia Tech was a lot better than LSU. Absolutely. And then you got to the, the regional semifinals and finals. You had to play Alabama, Alabama, Alabama for, for the fourth time. time. You were 3-0. and mm-hmm. And you them. negotiated that. Mm-hmm. And then you come to the LSU and the charm moves cool. out. Odell Brown with the freak defenses. Uh, you know, uh, I love him. Uh, what a great competitor. What a great coach. Uh, I know he was a thorn in Kentucky's side for many years, but that's because he was good at what he did. Um, I remember that last game like it was yesterday. I think I scored either 18 or 20 points in the first half. Man, I was on fire. I was playing with so much emotion. I remember Roger Harden and I talking the night before the game because we were both seniors. We knew we could beat LSU. And you yeah. didn't want that to be your last game. We didn't want that to be the last game. That just so happened to be in the old Omni in Atlanta. And all of my family and friends there. So all of the people who saw it begin for me, you know, from high school all the way to college, they, a lot of those people saw it in for me right there. But I remember in the second half of that ball game, uh, in that particular year, when teams uh, – packed their defenses in on me when they played the boxing ones and the triangles and twos and Dale Brown did all of that stuff. Um, he was pretty much, he packed it in and he was daring somebody to make shots from the outside. And normally, Ed Davender, Roger Harden, James Blackman, uh, one of those guys would step up and knock down at least a couple of shots to open it up. And I remember it the second half of that ball game, nobody couldn't get anything going. And after the game, you know, um, of course we lose by two points. I remember James Blackman heaving a shot from almost half court that almost went in to tie it up to send it in the overtime. But I sit out on the court five minutes after the game is over. LSU's running around celebrating and everything. My parents come out of the stand and they're consoling me. And Dale Brown walks over to me while they're there, and he says to my mom and dad, uh, look, Mrs. and Mrs. Walker, I know you all are disappointed about this game tonight, he said, but you got one hell of a basketball player right here that's getting ready to make you all very rich and a lot of money and stuff. He said, look, I, I'm, I enjoy winning the ball game today, no doubt. He said, but I feel sorry for this young man because he's one of the best competitors that I've ever uh, won against. And, of course, the way that my parents are, they obviously appreciated you know, that. And I remember my dad talking about that you know, for a few years after that. So, after that game, it's time to prepare for the draft. You are the uh, in the top five in the draft. You, you continue to spend five years with five different coaches. Mm. You may be the only person on the face of the earth who has actually been coached by Joe B. Hall, Eddie Sutton and Rick Pitino. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that's it. Uh, yeah, I will be that. I will be that guy. And I know a lot of people will say, "Well, how is that possible? Because how can you play for all the different guys?" Obviously, I played for Coach Hall three years of college, and then Eddie Sutton coached me my senior year. But a lot of people are not aware that I played for Rick Pitino two years in New York before he came to Kentucky in eighty-eight, eighty-nine. Mm-hmm. And in two things. Uh, first of all, 89, you lose your father. Mm-hmm. Tragic moment in your life. Yep. Three days before the, the slammed up contest at the NBA. Mm-hmm. And your mother talks you in to go on, your dad would want you yeah. to do this. See, and you did it. Yep. You know, I remember, you know, kind of ironically, I guess, when my father passed away, we were playing our final game. I was with the New York Knicks at the time. We was playing our final game before the All-Star break. It was actually in Atlanta. 
So I had planned on going home anyway, you know, to just see my dad for about a day or so before I went to the dog contest. So right before we were going to play the Hawks on that Thursday night before All-Star break, one of my brothers, Lewis, is up to um, come watch me at the game. And right before I get on the bus to go to the game, my brother George calls him and says, hey, look, I don't know if you should tell Kenny right now, but father passed away. You know, you can tell him before or after the game. So I think Lewis struggled with it. So he finally told me before the game. And when he told me, I was getting ready to get on the bus. I told Rick Pitino. And Coach Pitino said, look, Kenny, don't worry about this game. Go be with your mom. And if you want to do this dunk contest thing, you know, do it. But if not, just – you know, don't worry about it. Just go home. So that was the advice that he gave me, which I appreciated. But once I got home and I talked to my mother about it, she was like, well, not a whole lot that, you you know, <laughs> you could do here. We'll take care of everything. She said, you know, if your dad had been here today, you know he would have been there watching you. So go do it. We'll handle everything here. Just go get your mind off of it. Just try to enjoy it the best you can. I'm going, how can you enjoy something like this? But she was like, just go do it, which was didn't understand it at that time. But it was probably the best advice that I could get because everybody else was out there having fun. Not that I wasn't having fun. My focus and motivation obviously was uh, totally different. And I've always said p- to people, when – you're in a very difficult time sometimes. You think that you can't do something. You just got to reach down in yourself. Um, it's there. And I think that my father was a big inspiration for me on that day. There was a groundswell of emotional support from the people at the slam dunk contest. I mean, they knew what you had been going through and you won it. Mm-hmm. And you beat guy by the name of Clay Drexler <laughs> for the all, title. One you played against yeah. at Rupp Arena in 84. One of the all-time greats. You know, if uh, Michael Jordan had never been born, Clyde Drexler might be one of the best two guards to ever play in this uh, in the NBA. So to compete against him in the finals was great. Another guy that was in that contest also, Oscar, uh, that – uh, got eliminated earlier with Spud Webb and yes. you know five seven you know he's always a fan favorite you know being a little and bitty he guy a and he had, and he had won it a couple of years early so even though Dominique and and Michael Jordan was not in that particular contest it still was a tough contest to win I tell you what was uh, a, a, another kind of a crazy thing that happened in the finals you know Clyde had really did some really good dunks up until the finals. And, of course, I was building momentum, you know, as we went along. Well, we get in the final round. We both got three dunks apiece. And Clyde missed all three of his dunks in the finals. And, of course, only thing I got to do is just get, get, get a couple of them in at that time. People ask me all the time, what did I think about the final round? And Clyde missing all of those dunks. I said, that was my father in heaven blocking them out of there, you know, to try to make sure he didn't win it. So I had a little help from uh, from my father above. I really do believe it's divine intervention that set in on that day. And he was looking out for me. Uh, you go a little bit later that year in the late 88. And a good friend of yours and mine, uh, Don, Adam, Don uh, Johnson. Mm-hmm. You've known Don for many years. Mm-hmm. He called me one day and said, Oscar, do you think Kentucky would be interested in Rick Pitino if they hire a new coach? <laughs> At this time, Eddie had not yet been forced out, but the handwriting was pretty much on the wall. Mm-hmm. And I said, why do, why do you ask that, Don? He said, well, so I have a friend who has called me two or three times asking me that question. And I said, well, no, what kind of friend? I'm, I'm not linked past together. I said, who's coming? He said, well, no, you just don't quote me on on this. But he said, Kenny has called me two or three times and says that Coach Patino keeps asking about Lexington mm-hmm. and UK and what it's like down here. Mm-hmm. It's It was a weird uh, conversation to, to have, you know, because when the rumors and everything first, you know, come out, you know, you, 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 I mean, I was shocked and amazed that Rick Pitino 
was following that kind of stuff. Maybe I shouldn't have been because he had just came. He had, from, he'd had he his had, problems there. Well, he had just he had just come from Providence, and uh, he was having tremendous success with us in the second year with the Knicks. We had just made the playoffs, so you're figuring everything is going good. Uh, but a young Rick Pitino, who we were playing for at the time, had built the Knicks on a young, athletic, running gun shooting three-pointers, uh, playing an up-tempo style. Our general manager uh, at that time, Al Bianchi, uh, he wanted to get veterans and uh, to play a more slowdown style for to be more ready for playoff basketball, he thought. So it was a, com- a conflict of uh, philosophy. And I was shocked and surprised when Rick uh, Patino called me in his office one day and he said, uh, I'm going to talk to you after practice. And I'm going, well, what did I do? <laughs> you know, I think I'm in some kind of trouble or something. And he's like, well, what's going on with the Kentucky situation? And he started to inquire about it. And uh, the more that the situation in New York deteriorated, the more he wanted to know about it. And it really got close to the, the word was out that they were fairly close to signing, I think it was P.J. Carlissimo. And, boy, that I don't know what it is about P.J. that really got on his skin. He got was our a, Coach Patino. Yeah, skin. yeah, and he was like, wait a minute, don't, don't, don't get that guy. You know, let's, let's figure out something, you know. So uh, as soon as we, we lost uh, in the playoffs to the Bulls that year, 1989, they beat us in six games. It, it was a good series. Michael Jordan went off and averaged about 42 points against uh, against us, and they eliminated us uh, from the playoff. And probably within a week, maybe after we were eliminated from the playoff, Rick Pitino was being named head coach at the University of Kentucky. So uh, we had a lot of interesting conversations behind the scenes, and uh, I'm happy that he took it because – I think he is exactly what we needed at that time. He was brash, very charismatic, uh, played that up-tempo style that a Kentucky fans, you know, still love to this day. Um, so I think he dug us out of that hole uh, much quicker. I think the bigger question for Patino right now, which he won't answer it because he's at that other school, is he's – Probably so he's probably wishing that he never left. So you won't mention that other scuba name either. No, I just said that other school. You know, you know, just for keeping troop or Kentucky. That's sort of like fans. Darren Fellhouse, that, isn't it? That's right. Just, just saying that other school. You know, now that don't want to just just keep it like that. Kenny, don't you're you you you're in business here in Central Kentucky, and uh, you do pregame and postgame on WVLK Radio. Uh, how would you describe? Your love affair with Kentucky, having grown up, grown up with in Georgia, and making it your your home for a lifetime. Well, I've I've actually lived in Kentucky now longer than I've lived anywhere, so um, this is home for me, and I feel um, I feel like I'm an ambassador. I feel like I'm a part coach. I feel like I'm a part mentor. You know, in the roles that I play and the different things that I do, I'm glad that I have a platform so I can converse with the Kentucky fans. Uh, I know exactly what this program means to people because I travel from Pikeville to Paducah to Bowling Green to Newport, you name it. I'm all over the state doing a lot of different things. And what I've been fascinated with uh, personally is – the love that Kentucky fans and the pride that they have in us, not only as basketball players, but people who are representing this state in this university. It means a lot to me because it's been 30 years since I played at the University of Kentucky, but it doesn't seem like that to most UK fans. They treat me like I've just, you know, been here yesterday. And to be mentioned with the greats, whether it's, Kyle Macy, Dan Issel, Jack Gibbons, Anthony Davis, John Wall. When people say to me, man, you're one of my all-time favorites. 
that means a lot to me because I know how many guys that they can choose from to say that about. And maybe Kentucky fans say that about, you know, all the players. But I feel special. I feel blessed. I feel like I had a great, you know, career here, but it's not over. It's a lot of things uh, for me to continue to do in and around Kentucky, and I look forward to doing them. Thank you, Kenny. No problem. Where, where does this rank among our six? Well, considering what you said, you're my all-time favorite. Uh, <laughs> this is number one. Nah. <laughs> number one in my You're Skywalker. Mm-hmm. You had your share of dunks. Mm-hmm. You've seen your share of dunks in the NBA. Mm-hmm. Where it's Michael Jordan. Oh, I know where you're going with this one, I think. Dirk Minifield dunk. Dirk Minifield, Mississippi State. Might be the best dunk of all time. Well, I don't have no problem saying that because I have an up-close view of it because I thought Dirk was going to throw the lob to me. I was on the other side. And when that guy planted to take a charge, he put his knee in his chest. And only his momentum up, that gave him an extra boost. When he dunked it, his whole arm was in the rim and he had to duck down to keep him hitting his head on the back there. He was up so high on that, man. It was just, it was unbelievable. It's the best dunk I've ever seen. Don't think it'll ever be top. No, 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 no. I mean, I've seen, I've had my share of good dunks, but I have never seen a dunk like that. I mean, it was, I was scared for him because, and you can tell that he was up so high that he actually scared himself. But but Dirk is only, what, 6'2", 6'3", which is amazing. When you got ready to be four eyes, (laughs) had the goggles, Mm -hmm. leave me on. Well, um... I remember a lot of people think that uh, it, it happened after the Chris Mullen game when I got poked in Coach Hall last game. But technically, I started my senior year, which was uh, Eddie Sutton's first year, playing the first three or four games without the goggles. It wasn't until we played a game in Kansas, uh, one of only four games that we lost that year. Uh, Rob Lock had just checked in the ball game, I think, towards the end of, about midway through the first half. And I was playing defense against Danny Manning. He was posting up to try to take a shot. And I didn't jump, I would just held my ground. And Rob Locke come over trying to block a shot and he missed blocking the shot. And I was standing there on defense and he smacked me right in the eye and kind of had blurred vision. And they took me out of the ball game, kind of stretched me over the eye again stretch cornea for the second time so it was after that ball game actually that I started to experiment with different goggles in practice and I couldn't find anything that I was comfortable with after about a week or so we finally called the Los Angeles Lakers and we talked to their trainer and we asked them where did Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and James Worthy get their goggles and uh, we liked those because they were clear on the side You don't know how much you need your peripheral vision uh, in basketball or in sports until you have to go without it. So the one thing that made those goggles really cool was they were really clear on the side and they didn't block my peripheral vision. And that's the reason why we went with those. 